University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. So yet again, like our forebearers that took the pulpit in the midst of chaos, and conflict, and division, pastors across America are going to attempt to bring a word from God today. And how can we not? There are five people dead, countless others injured. Fear has been sown, and anger is being felt. Discord rules our communities. How unfortunate that many of the remarks made in many of the sermons today will not be heard except through the filter of our political allegiance, falsely grounded in this ideal of biblical values. See, many pastors that are going to preach today will be condemned by those who do not want to hear it by claiming they are preaching a partisan message or pushing a political agenda. I recognize that many of you will be angry at me for even bringing up what happened this week. Others will be disappointed in me for not going as far as what you think I should say this morning. I get it now. I get why so many pastors and churches just want to hear those catchy three-point sermons that put up our blinders to make us feel good and never challenge us to change. It's so much easier to preach a message about cultural sins, other people's sins, than to look within our own lives, our own churches, our own communities to see how our actions have led us to where we are today in this country. How does one bring a word from God after we witness what we witnessed this last week? And to be honest, it's super complicated. I still haven't figured out the best way to explain it to my nine-year-old and six-year-old on what they witnessed on TV. And I'm sure uh, that many of you, there's this incredible mix of emotions as you witness what happened this week. I know I was filled with burning anger and disgust and disappointment and disillusion and judgment and fear all mixed together. And it's therefore hard to discern how God would have you address such things to work through all of these emotions that we feel. What I do know is this. On January the 13th, 2008, I was ordained into the ministry of the gospel with a high and holy calling to lead the people of God from the word of God. Never once have I used the pulpit as a political party's agenda or for political figures. I take my calling very serious, that my life should be a reflection of Jesus Christ and that I should be conveying a message of Jesus to this world. It's a message of peace and justice and mercy and grace and hope and love. At all times, the gospel message heals our wounds, it restores our souls, and gives us another chance. And at the same time, the gospel message cuts right through our self-righteousness, our hatred, our bigotry, our racism, our selfishness, our pride, and our idolatry. I'm here this morning to preach the gospel. The question is, how will we receive it? And everything that we see and we think 
and we speak and we do each day is, is seen through a particular perspective. We all have a bias when it comes to this world. And these perspectives have been shaped by the way that things that we have been taught, things that we have been told are true, our, our experiences and the things that we have witnessed in our lives. So we know how Republicans might respond to what happened this week. We know how Democrats might respond to what happened this week, or how liberals or conservative might respond. There's the response of anger, there's the response of fear, there's the response of praise, and there's a response of judgment. But we're here to ask the question this morning, what about Jesus? How would Jesus respond to what happened on Wednesday? Which is a microcosm of the American political divisiveness of our era. Every time you and I encounter Jesus of Nazareth, we bring our experience, our cultural, our philosophical, our political and theological perspectives in how we interpret him. The way that we have learned to understand Jesus is determined in advance by how we see him, what we see him doing, how Jesus would deal with things in certain situations. And we are guilty, more often than we care to admit, of shaping Jesus into what we want and to what we desire, and to how we see the world, and how that affects our day-to-day living. This happens from the far right, to the middle, and to the left of the theological perspective. And the degree of religiosity, no matter how conservative or liberal, it's all too often that we try to shape Jesus. And this is not a new thing. In fact, there is a famous passage that we read from the Gospel of Matthew, in which Jesus is having this very same conversation. It says this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. For people who experienced his physical presence, some wanted Jesus to be like a David-like king that would restore Israel back to its former glory by striking down the Romans with brute force and with war. For others, they when they saw Jesus, they only wanted him to be this the spiritual guru that restored the heart of Israel back to God. For others, they wanted him to be some sort of bold prophet that struck down the injustices of his day with with words from God. And even Simon would make this great declaration of faith. He even failed to believe that Jesus could be the Messiah that overcame his arrest and his execution. It seems as though Jesus has always and never been able to escape from humanity's attempt to shape and mold him into what we want him to be. But that's the catch of Jesus' question. He didn't ask, who do you want me to be? But he asked, who do you say that I am? I think One of the things that shocked me the most on Wednesday as I watched the live coverage of of everything that happened was the Jesus 2020 flags that were being carried by those that forced their way into the Capitol. What was the intention behind the act like this of the rioters? Were, 
Were they believing that they were doing the same thing of Jesus cleansing the temple? I failed to read in the Gospels, in those passages where when Jesus went into the temple to cleanse it, that he also brought zip ties to take hostages, brought assault weapons along with him, and set up a hangman's noose to send a threatening message. Let's be clear, this is not a parallel to Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. The Jesus embossed on flags being waved at the U.S. Capitol is not the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. And when I saw these images online, other images were paired with them. We have some of these here. These are other images of Jesus you can find online. It seems in America, we all want to claim Jesus for our own. And for what? Does it justify our side agenda or arguments more righteously if we act like the Son of God is on our side? Since God became flesh and, and walked among us, we have attempted to wield his influence and power for our own benefit. The Pharisees in the Gospels threw a woman caught in adultery before Jesus, knowing that he was bound to the law of Moses to determine that such women should be stoned to death. They wanted him to throw the first stone. Standing before Pilate, who desired to give Jesus a way out to recant his claims about himself, let Barabbas take the fall for your insurrection, Jesus. Many scholars believe that the reason that Judas Iscariot handed Jesus over to the temple guards was he believed it would force Jesus' hand to bring about that violent revolution to be the kingly Messiah Judas wanted him to be. No matter if it is for a theocratic empires of the, the middle medieval Europe, the justification of violence against Muslims in the Crusades, or American political puppeteering of Jesus for political leverage, humans have always tried to turn Jesus into a mascot for our agendas. The prostitution of Jesus for the sake of political figures and allegiance and agenda has completely disillusioned my soul. We are where we are today because too many American Christians have thrown away their fidelity to Jesus by giving it over to political demagogues. Why are we so willing to sidestep the gospel of love and mercy for the gospel of white privilege and security? A few years back for Christmas, we got the girls these silicone animal shapes that are supposed to make really cool pancakes. And the instructions were simple. One, make the pancake batter. Two, place the silicone shape on the hot griddle. Three, pour the batter into the shape. And four, cook until golden brown. And five, enjoy. And we were so excited to make these bad boys, except when we tried to make them, well, let's just say they didn't exactly turn out as advertised. And as it turns out, these silicone shapes were actually designed to cook eggs and not at all to cook pancakes. You see, our, despite our best efforts, we can't shape Jesus to our liking because that's not how faith works. And like the disciples that fumbled over Jesus' question in our text, we can often miss out on the whole purpose behind it. What did he say in verse 15? But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Jesus isn't interested 
in us mushing him into whatever works for our existing worldviews, political views, economic views, national views, views on race and gender and sexuality. Jesus isn't interested in us cramming him into our already existing views of Democrats and Republicans and anarchists and conservatives and liberals. Instead, Jesus is inviting us to discover through him who he is and how he can reshape our lives into something more beautiful, more fulfilling, more life-giving, and more transformational for the world. Jesus is inviting us to step out in faith, to follow him into a new way of thinking and living. And this is not a way driven by fear or hatred or judgment or division or chaos. In Jesus, we find peace among turmoil, hope among darkness, joy amid sorrow, kindness among hostility. Instead of blindfolded allegiance to political acts, Jesus calls us to use our brains to think for ourselves, to understand right and wrong, no matter the political gains or losses. Jesus calls us to to seek justice, to love mercy when facing injustice in our community, even when those injustices happen to people that we don't see eye to eye with, that look different from us. Jesus calls us to not repay evil with evil, but love and service, knowing that the hardest of hearts can be transformed by grace. And it's in such radical way of living that one cannot simply try to pick and choose from the practices of Jesus that we like and dislike. The way of Jesus is an invitation to 100% give of ourselves into a radical shifting of the way that we see and live our lives. You see, it changes everything within us. It changes our identity authentically. It's a rebelling against our baser instincts and waging war against our soul. And as we re rebel against the norm of getting to the top, of pushing everyone's down, the norm of, of hatred and grudges and criticism, that we are becoming more holy and grace-filled and loved by God. All of a sudden, we're not living self-righteous, self-centered, and self-destructive lives, but we're living lives that reflect the ministry of Jesus. And despite what the world around us is doing, despite the war that rages around us, we choose to be like Jesus. And the challenge that life brings us is what do we do when Jesus' way clashes against all other allegiances? What happens when Jesus clashes against our political worldview that wants to demonize those that we don't see eye to eye with? What happens when Jesus clashes with our religious worldview that wants to outcast those that don't fit into our understanding of who is welcome and who is not? What happens when Jesus clashes against our economic worldview that wants us to believe that people are just taking advantage of the system or they just need to work harder to get where we are? What happens when Jesus clashes against the way that we often find that contradicts what we see within the Gospels? The reality is that one of those things wins out. It's either Jesus or the other. I mean, don't get me wrong. 
we really try to bend what we believe as being faithful to both. That's why we are where we are today. We believe that we can be faithful to political demagogues that contradict the very essence of Jesus and yet claim that we want eternal life from Jesus. There's a saying that cuts right to the heart of the matter of American Christianity. When you mix religion and politics, you get politics. However, Jesus reminds us that we cannot serve two masters. Either we will hate one and love the other. But it's through faith that Jesus calls us to push through such things to discover that there is something more through him. I'm reminded of a story from the ministry of Dr. King in 1962. He was gathered in a pack auditorium. He was rallying people to organize around numerous boycotts and protests and marches. And in the sixth row sat Roy James, a six-foot-two, 200-pound white man. And Roy James was a lieutenant stormtrooper in the American Nazi party. And as he heard King spoke, he just got more angry and angry. And finally, James couldn't take it anymore. He sprung out of his seat. He bolted to Dr. King and punched him with a left fist to the face. And as Dr. King fell to the floor, he began to pummel him again and again. And King was bleeding profusely from the punches to his lips and his faces. He was swelling up in his ears and his neck and his back. And King's aides rushed to the stage. And in the scuffle, King and Roy James were knocked to the ground. And King's aides were trying to give Roy James his dues. But they were astounded to find that Martin Luther King Jr. had literally become his assailant's protector. King held Roy James, protecting him from the people who were trying to retaliate for what he had done. Then King stood him up and introduced him to the crowd as if he was a surprised and welcome guest among them. And the story goes that Roy James began to weep. You know, we hear stories about Dr. King having love against the white-hot violence and racism, and we think, wow, that, that must be profound faith. I don't know if I could do something like that. Do we believe that Jesus is the supreme act of divine intrusion into our world that is unsettled politically and socially and economically? Do we believe that God wants us to be a part of intruding this unjust world with God's justice? You see, faith is truly required to follow Jesus. Faith is required to think and act beyond our limitations, beyond what we are told we should and should not do by our political figures. Faith in Jesus is required to see the failures and brokenness of this world and yet try to go and live lives of peace and justice and joy among such hatred. The invitation of Jesus seems so great and demands so much. In fact, it seems almost impossible, but that's why it requires faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed. And for such little faith, Jesus says, great things can happen. You know, every time I grow weary of continually to preach the gospel message against political idolatry and white privilege and racial subjugation and bigotry, I remember that Jesus was crucified 
for his condemnations of such atrocities. Jesus was a threat to the political and religious system of his day that shared a bed with both. It's easy, it's easy, easy, easy to take the easy road. It's super easy to just ignore what happened or just believe that political word vomit that's handed to us from politicians. It's super easy to just want Christianity that, that, that fits into a little, little faith box that we can set to the side. And without realizing it, we have twisted Jesus' words when he said that the way to life is narrow while the path to destruction is wide and easy. You see, fear and anxiety and worry and inaction are the great obstacles of Jesus' followers in the Western world. It's not anything new. Even in Jesus' hometown where he got up to preach this message that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to preach good news to the poor, to recover sight to the blind, to release the oppressed and set the captive free. Do you know how his hometown of Nazareth responded to that message? They tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And they weren't successful in Nazareth that day. But in the coming years, Jesus would be murdered for his willingness to stand against the political and religious and social injustices of his day. We live in a world driven by fear and chaos. We fear the unknown. We fear the people we don't understand. We fear things that are out of our control. Even the American political system is based on fearing others. But what we don't realize is that fear robs us and the world of love. Fear is a thief. It steals our peace of mind. It hijacks our relationships, keeping us sealed away in our plastic worlds with a fragile sense of security. But thank God that God does not cause us to live in fear, but in love. What's written in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. See, fear has us become disdainful and indifferent towards others. Fear wages war against kindness. If we live in fear, then we're shaped in lives of anxiety and apprehension. But if we live in love and humility, then our, our lives open up to the creativity of God and new possibilities. And unless we find a way to open ourselves up to others, we will grow more isolated and more frightened and more judgmental to those that are different from us. When we bolt our gates and when we lock our doors and we avert our eyes from others, we are forbidding the love of God from transforming our lives. And Jesus says that, for I was hungry and thirsty and lonesome and tired and in prison, a foreign stranger, and you have an opportunity to act. Perfect love drives out all fear. We are a people created by a God defined as love and called by Jesus to be known by all others by our love. I'm reminded of another story that took place in um, World War II when the Nazis had occupied France and they had set up a puppet uh, ruler in, in its place and they began to start these internment camps, and they were requiring all French students to do the Nazi salute as they saluted the flag each morning. 
And eventually the German troops would go from town to town as they were looking for French Jews to send them off to concentration camps. But there were some who didn't go along with this. There were some who resisted. And there was one specific pastor that comes to mind. His name was uh, Andre Trunchman. And he preached that loving his neighbor was an essential thing of following Jesus. And in his context, that meant Jews who were being systematically hunted and murdered. And, and under the leadership of, of, of Pastor Trotchman, uh, this town secured and sheltered over 5,000 Jews. And they were met with resistance. But here is a message that Andre Trotchman delivered to the German officials. He writes, Mr. Minister, we have learned of the frightening scenes in Paris, where the French soldiers under the occupiers arrested all the Jewish families, fathers and mothers, who were torn from their children. We are afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It's contrary to the gospel teachings. If our comrades, who only fault is their religion they were born into, receive an order to let themselves be deported or examined, they would, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them the best that we could. We have Jews. You're not getting them. This isn't a divided allegiance to Jesus, but a full commitment to live out what Jesus has called his followers to. This is living first for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of France and Germany. See, as we stare down a world full of conflict and division and chaos, we must remember that we are not alone. You and I are called to live out the way of Jesus together. I hear the echoes of Peter's writing in 1 Peter where he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possessions, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wages war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. May we answer Jesus' question together. May we choose to recognize that there is only one Lord and Savior in our life and anything less is split fidelity. May we come to see that Jesus demands our complete allegiance, making it impossible for us to follow the ways of a political demagogue. My prayer is that the Jesus of the gospel will show up. He'll show up in our lives of those that claim to follow him. Not just praying for peace, but actively repenting of our contributions to the violence and injustices of our community. My prayer is that we are a people who sow peace and love and hope and mercy and justice. And if we end up being crucified for such acts of love, may we remember that crucifixion was good enough for Jesus. Maybe it's good enough for us.